Good morning, church family. How are we? All right. Hey, that's a good response for the first request. Usually I have to ask twice. So there's a learning curve. We're doing well. Uh, My name is Nathan. I am the interim Bible teacher, and it's good to see you here today. Uh, We're going to be, as Will just read, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 today. Uh, And really what we're going to be doing, this is part seven of our series we're calling Gospel Power, Gospel Joy through the letter of Paul to the Philippian church. And so part seven already, and today we've kind of been in in a a little bit of a, I don't want to call it a mini series, but kind of looking at really verse 27 of chapter one and how Paul has been fleshing that out really for the last four weeks And so I was thinking this week, uh, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about uh, the first time uh, I rode on a plane. I would love just a quick show of hands. Who here would say you are a a window seat person on a plane? Window seat, okay. Who would be an aisle seat? That's me, I guess the rest of you are middle seats. I didn't think I'd have to ask that question, but if I'm looking at participation, there's more middle seat people than I would think. I don't like the middle seat. Uh, I don't know why I like the aisle seat. I don't know if it's because I'm an Enneagram eight. And so it gives me a little more control being close to the aisle and being on the outside. Uh, But I also like to look out the window, which can get really weird if the person by the window, I don't know, because I'm like staring at them. No, I'm I'm looking out the window, not at you. Uh, That happened actually a couple weeks ago when I was flying home from San Antonio. The person next to me didn't have their window up. So I'm like looking all the way across the aisle to see us land. I remember the first time I flew, I was in sixth grade. We were going to Orlando. I'll let you consider why we might be flying to Orlando with children um, to see Mickey. And so we were going to Orlando. And I just remember the first time I flew, uh, it helped my prayer life as a sixth grader because I was freaking out a little bit. Um, And so I'm praying to the Lord, uh, nervous about flying. Uh, I remember the exhilaration of the takeoff and the way, you know, your, your ears kind of pop a little bit with, with the altitude. And then I remember just the utter fear as I, we were trying to land and what felt like the plane was doing this as we landed. But the thing I remember the most about the first time I flew was that perspective from 30,000 feet of the world. Like when you look out the window and you, you see just like it, everything looks the same. You see, the complexity of our world is really, is really beautiful. When we're on the ground, we see the beauty of nature. We see, you know, the, the immensity of a mountain range, the intricacies of a flower, just brilliant architecture in, in just amazing and inspiring designs of homes and breathtaking art. We see that on the ground, yet from a plane, everything looks so monotonous. It looks so the same. And if you have, like me, if you've got the Apple TV, that screensaver that comes up over the globe, it's just, it's amazing. It just looks like water and land and that's it. And I think we need both perspectives in life. It helps us to see the vastness of the ocean when you fly over one for hours and hours on end if you go overseas. Or to see even the grandest mountain range look a little bit larger than a molehill in your yard from 30,000 feet. It allows us to have a larger perspective. And I think when we talk about 
ideas, sometimes we use that, that analogy of 30,000 feet. It gives you a larger perspective on an issue to like grapple with the concept itself in general, but we also need the view from the ground to appreciate the intricacies, the complexities, and the beauty of life. And that's where I think we're gonna be today in Philippians. I think Paul understood that. For three weeks, we've been looking at verse 127 in a way, which says, only conduct the manner of your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we've been looking at it really for the last three weeks before today from in, in a lot of ways from like a 30,000 foot view. We've been looking at a lot of concepts about what it means to live our life worthy of the gospel. We've looked at the fact that it means we strive side by side, we stand firm in the midst of persecution, that we're unified by humility, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and that what motivates all of this is a proper view of Jesus himself, the one who took on flesh and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then was exalted to the highest place and given a name over every name. We've looked at it from large perspective and concepts, and while I've tried to, as, as is my job, to make it applicable to your life on the ground. There is a certain level of it just being very lofty and very theoretical, but I think Paul understands that, and that's why I think this is here in this part portion of Philippians, is he's giving them <coughs> two models by which they can actually see. People they knew, Epaphroditus and Timothy, people they knew that they had seen and lived life with that Paul is saying, I'm not just talking about Jesus, like we can't be Jesus. He, he's our model, yes, first and foremost, but, but even look at these two men that you know. And so as we look at these two exemplars of what Paul has been saying now for a whole chapter of living our lives worthy of the gospel, we're gonna see three, what I'm calling three rhythms of gospel living. Three, three rhythms of gospel living in the real world. And then we're gonna see the trust that's required for peace in gospel living in the real world. So three rhythms and then the trust required for gospel peace. And why do I say rhythm? Like, I mean, <clears throat> what is a rhythm? A rhythm is a repeated pattern of movement, okay? We often think about it in music. Um, you know, we might say this person's got rhythm or they don't. Um, it's a repeated pattern in music, but it's just a repeated pattern of movement. And the reality is that, why would I bring that up is to say, we don't drift into living lives worthy of the gospel. It doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up and you're like, oh man, I've been, I've been crushing it. Didn't even realize it. It just doesn't happen. Even as God saves us and makes us new, when we're left to ourselves without any kind of thought or intentionality, we will drift away from him. Without intentionality, the river of culture will take us downstream and our flesh will tug at us through its carnal desires. It takes intentionality to live a life worthy of the gospel. And the way we see in the text that we can be intentional is by requiring some rhythms in our lives, some repeated patterns to help us find a groove of gospel living in the real world. And so what we'll see is these three rhythms. So the first rhythm that we see in the text, and just to let you know on the front end, 
This is not going to be what you would typically see where we go word by word or verse by verse. I'm gonna kind of have to skip around a little bit because I think when we look at what he's saying, really there are some, th some themes I want us to see that are kind of filtered throughout the text. But we will start with the first two verses. So rhythm number one is genuine care for others. The first rhythm we have to have to have gospel living in the real world is genuine care for others. And you see it in verses 19 and 20. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuine care is a rhythm of gospel living. We see right here, first, Paul has genuine care for them. You know, he says he's gonna be cheered of news of them. Like, I, you don't get cheered by news of people that you don't really know or care for. You know, if somebody in our town gets promotion that I don't know or is not in our church, I'm like, great for you, but I'm not gonna be just overly cheered by that. But if, some, if God's doing work in your life, if God's doing work in people that I know, I'm going to find great cheer in that because I genuinely care about them. But it's not just that he's cheered by him. We see that Paul has genuine care for them because he sends them Timothy. Paul cannot be there himself. He's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. But he says that he's going to send Timothy because Timothy is like him. Like him in mind. I have no one like him. One of the translations, uh, the Christian Standard Bible says that Timothy is like-minded with Paul. Paul has genuine care for these people. But so does Timothy. Notice what he says. He says, that, so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy himself has genuine care for this church. So what is genuine care? Well, if we look at verse 20 and 21, it's clearly looking after the needs of others. Look at what he says. For I have no one like him, verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Why? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So that's the negative way of saying that genuine care is not seeking your own interests, but looking after the needs and interests <clears throat> of others. But genuine welfare is not just concern for welfare. I mean, we all know what it's like to have someone act like they care. Like you kinda, they kind of act like they care and then you really realize down the road they never really cared. Maybe they were in it for personal gain. Uh, maybe it made them feel better to help you because it made them feel superior that you needed their help, but they're not gonna be honest with you to let you know when they need help. Like we've all seen care or what's masquerading as care, but is actually not authentic, genuine care. What Paul is saying is that Timothy has genuine care, authentic care for these people. And the other thing we see from verse 21 is that genuine care means we care like Jesus. We care like Jesus. This is an intentional, I think, echo of Paul from verses three through five in chapter two. He's showing when he says in verses three through five, I'll just read it here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Sound familiar? Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Paul is taking what he's already instructed them and he's saying, okay, if this is hard, look at Timothy. Look at Timothy. This is what it looks like from a 30,000 foot view to live life worthy of the gospel. You look to the interests of others and if you're like, how do I do that? Look at Timothy. You know him. He has proven himself and he is putting his interests below yours. He puts the interests of the Philippian church above his own in the way that Jesus would have. Paul says genuine caring for others, genuine caring for others and the interests of Jesus are two sides of the same coin. Notice the way he works it out in verse 21. How does he actually say it? He says he has genuine concern for your welfare for they all seek their own interests, not of those of Jesus Christ. He's basically showing them that the interests of Jesus Christ and concern for your welfare are the same coin and being interested in yourself only doesn't live on par with that. Having genuine care for others then is sending people to their aid and is modeled after Jesus who was sent to our greatest need, salvation and reconciliation with God. But it's not just Timothy that shows genuine care here. Paul sends Timothy, who's waiting until Paul feels, or uh, waiting until Paul knows what's gonna happen to him. He waits to send Timothy, but he says he's going now to send them Epaphroditus. Verse 25, I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, a minister to my need. Who's Epaphroditus and why is he there? Well, we find out Epaphroditus was the messenger from the Philippian church to Paul. They were worried about him in prison. So they send gifts, they send encouragement with Epaphroditus to Paul. And Paul is saying, I'm gonna send him back. We see that Epaphroditus was there because Philippians had genuine care for Paul. And so they send Epaphroditus there to minister to his needs. It is a rhythm of genuine care. The Philippian church caring for Paul. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus caring for the church. It's a pattern of life that doesn't simply say that you care, but actually goes about leveraging you, what you have, your time, your gifts, your talents, your money, your very life to be an encouragement and to meet the needs of others. And I've experienced this in my own life. And I hope many of you have experienced the same. Genuine care from brothers and sisters in Christ. I've shared a little bit of my story the last couple of weeks, um, but whenever uh, I, I found out I was a junior in college and I found out I was going to be a dad, um, not in the typical way that you would find or that you would be a dad in that scenario, I wasn't married. And so um, I remember my youth pastor from my dad's church where, I, where I'd spent my high school years, um, he drove, it's Hot Springs, three hours from here. Well, now it's two and a half if I'm driving. Um, but there's also better roads, uh, shorter distance. I don't speed that much. But, but he drove three hours on like a Monday night to meet me at McAllister's to encourage me. That's it. He drove three hours to speak into my life in a moment that I needed to be spoken into. It's genuine care. And I'll never forget it. It was 21 years ago, 22 years ago. I'll never forget it. We've experienced this in our own life, just in the last few years. 
the birth of our child, Brooks, our youngest, uh, was difficult. Uh, I had to give her a shot every day uh, in her stomach, twice a day at the end, um, to the point we even had to go to the ER one time and the, the ER doc asked me to leave so he could ask her if I was like Mike Tysoning her belly because it was all bruised up. We had people caring for us. Her father died three months before Brooks was born. We had people show up for us in real ways. We've had, she's had surgeries where we've had meal trains put together. I get, I get texted prayers even now in this season from you Y'all are an encouragement to me. You encourage me as I preach. You encourage me in so many ways. And I pray that we've been the same to you. Genuine care is a rhythm of what it looks like to actually on the ground live out the gospel and a life worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. Genuine care. So the question that I have for you is, the best way for this to happen, not really question the application, the best way for this to happen in our context, in our church, is in a journey group. It's in a journey group. This is where you are known in the day-to-day aspects of life. And for some of you, that's like, that's pretty scary for someone to know your day-to-day aspects of life. It's like, ooh, I mean, I, I wanna like, you know, I wanna see them and maybe, maybe get to know them a little bit, hang out, but I don't really want them knowing everything. And that's pretty common actually in our culture of today. It's individualistic. It's like, it's my life. Let me kind of live how I want. To have people speaking into our life, to speak into other people's lives. It's a little grimy at times, but this is the way that a church our size can feel smaller and more intimate is through being in a group. We can genuinely care for each other's welfare when we know and are known in the context of Christian community. And we're not perfect at this. Like we're all human. We all make mistakes. There may be some in here today who've been hurt by this church. And there may be some in here today who've been let down by a journey group. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But as we press on and we try to give genuine care to one another, it also allows us when we fail to work out what it means to be gracious and merciful with one another. Genuine care. Uh, the manner of life worthy of the gospel when we genuinely care for others over ourselves. Tony Marita and Francis Chan, one of their commentaries, what I've been reading through this, uh, they say it like this. They say this leads to, to J-O-Y, joy. J, and this is the order in which you get joy. Jesus, others, yourself. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. This type of joy, this type of living creates a joy that makes us shine as lights on the ground in the real life day to day. But not just that. The second rhythm we see of gospel living in the real world in this text is relational discipleship. The second rhythm is relational discipleship. Look at verse 20. He says this, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So Paul says he has no one like Timothy. As I said earlier, the Christian Standard Bible translates it, I have no one else like-minded. How did Timothy become like-minded with Paul? Was he just touched by the Holy Spirit and immediately has the same mind as Paul? No, does not appear so. 
says that he's like-minded because he served with Paul in the gospel as a son with a father. You see, we first meet Timothy in the scriptures in Acts 16, which just so happens to be right before Paul goes to Philippi. And let me just read, it'll be on, your, on the screen as well, but let me just read how this actually plays itself out in Acts 16, just so you can see where I'm getting this idea of relational discipleship. Here's what it says. Verse one of chapter 16 of Acts. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Catch that. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. Now, we're not following this exactly like Paul, okay? Just take a breath there for a second, men. <clears throat> he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them the observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And then look at verse five. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. This is what Timothy experienced. This is what he experienced. Notice how the discipleship began. Paul hears of Timothy's faith and reputation. He was living as a light in the world and Paul hears of that and says, I wanna meet this dude. Probably, that's probably 2022 language. Uh, I wanna meet this brother. So he goes and he meets Timothy and he says, come with me. He accompanies him on the mission. He doesn't just say, hey, I've heard good things about you. I'm gonna start, you know, you're gonna be my pen pal for a while, and not that that's bad, but just to say the way that Paul wanted to raise him up is not to say, hey, I'll try to download everything I know to you over time through some letters. He says, come and watch what we do. Come be a part of what we do. That's how it began. The discipleship with Paul and Timothy was centered around presence. The presence of Paul in his life the presence of Timothy in Paul's life, and as we see in verse five, the presence of God in their midst as they go and make disciples. So Timothy's discipled as they went through these cities. They're relaying the decisions that the elders and the apostles make in Jerusalem. And he's hearing these things and he's seeing the way Paul's engaging with these churches and he's seeing them be strengthened in their faith and that disciples are made every single day. And here we have this letter to Philippians, which is 10 to 12 years after the church was planted. So he's been doing this with Paul for a decade. And now he's not just Paul's disciple. He's a son to Paul. This is the rhythm of relational discipleship. And the fruit of it is often a familial affection between the discipler, Paul, and the one being discipled in the way of Jesus, Timothy. But it's not just Timothy who's got this familial affection. Paul says this about Epaphroditus, verse 25 again. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And how, look how he describes him. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He describes him as a brother, it's familial, 
but also a fellow worker and a fellow soldier, a relational discipleship. It's not the same as Timothy. He wasn't traveling with them, but clearly Paul knew Epaphroditus. They had served in Philippi. And once again, Paul indicates that the way that they have common experience or that, that, the, that they have a common experience working in the gospel, a fellow worker, and as a soldier in the fight of faith. Just like Timothy, I think Paul's intentionally drawing their minds back to what he's already said more of at a 30,000 foot view, where he's already talked about what it means we have to stand firm, verse 27, in the face of persecution. And when we preached through that a few weeks ago, I said, that's military language of that day. Paul was intentionally connoting to them what it's like to stand firm in the face of persecution. It is a military, it's a soldier-like endeavor, and now he calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier. And so what we see here, what's more, is this is stemming off the Christ hymn, because you look at verse 30, look what he says about Epaphroditus. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He's intentionally, I think, calling back similar language to Jesus who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. In Philippians 2, 8, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now he's saying, what is that like for me? Well, look at Epaphroditus. Y'all know Epaphroditus, you sent him to me. Look at his life. You've heard he was sick. He wasn't just sick, he nearly died. And he did it for the sake of the gospel and the for sake of ministering to me. Leverage your life the same way. He's giving them concrete on the ground examples of what he's been encouraging them to do. The rhythm of relational discipleship then creates gospel relationships in which people resemble Jesus to one another. And they call each other to follow Jesus and they flesh that calling out through, through living life together in the real world. So my question for us on this today and myself who are you discipling in your life? Some, some of you may think you're not qualified. Like you're not mature enough to disciple someone. And others of you may just think you just don't know how to do it. But what takes the pressure off is to realize that discipleship is not really about a method as much as it is discipling them to a person. It's discipling them to the person to follow the way of Jesus and to do it with mercy and grace. So how can you do this? Well, I would say first, if you know someone in the faith, invite them to live life with you. It's difficult, it's grimy, but the reality is like while books and Bible studies are so good and necessary, when you invite them to walk with you through the seasons of life, there's a certain discipleship you can't replicate any other way. Invite someone newer in the faith than you to walk through what it's like for you to make decisions. Just talk it out with them. How you pray, pray together with them. Show them how to seek reconciliation. If you're a parent in the room, think about your family. Because you disciple your kids by what you model for them. It's not a question of if you're gonna disciple your kids, you are discipling your kids. I am discipling my kids. It's the question is, how am I discipling my kids and who am I discipling my kids to? That's why we pray with them, right? 
why we teach them about Jesus, but we also want to model it for them. We have made it a habit in our house that we want our kids, when they offend the, another kid in the house or another person in the house, to ask for forgiveness. Not to just say, I'm sorry, but to come and state what you did and to ask for forgiveness. For them to own their own sin and ask for forgiveness. But how do we model that for them? When we sin against each other, I can tell you, this may be shocking to you, but I'm not a perfect husband or even close. And there have been times where I have, not, I have said something that was maybe disrespectful or made my wife not feel very good in front of my family. And I don't just take her to the private room and say, hey, babe, I'm real sorry I did that in front of everybody. I call the family and say, guys, I, I, need, to, I need to confess this sin to mom and I need to, to ask for her forgiveness. And we do that with our kids. When I sin against my kids, I don't brush under the rug because, hey, I'm the dad. Just deal with it. I'm not perfect, but I'm your dad. No, I go in and I say, daddy's really sorry that I did this or said this or acted this way. Will you forgive me? We model it. We disciple our family. And it's no different when we're talking to brothers and sisters in the faith. What we model when we do that is that being a disciple is not about how faultless you are but how you run to God for reconciliation for your sin. Because that's the essence of the gospel. If you feel like you can't share the gospel or disciple people in the gospel because you're not good enough, you don't understand the gospel. We're not calling them to be good. We're calling them to love Jesus who gave his life for them. And that creates in us the ability to disciple anyone. And when we do it relationally, it, it allows us to live as lights in the world and to have a life worthy of the gospel. But the third rhythm I want us to see here is missional partnership. The third rhythm we see is missional partnership. And, and here's where we see it. Uh, I'm gonna read two different verses, verses 22 and 25, verses we've read a few times already. Verse 22 again, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father this is the part here. He has served with me in the gospel. We see that with Timothy. He has served with me in the gospel, missional partnership. But not only that, verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and soldier, <coughs> and your messenger and minister to my need. These are missional partnerships. Both of these men were partnering in the work of the gospel. Epaphroditus is described as a messenger to Paul's needs. That means he was sent. Yes, he wasn't sent to share the gospel with Paul, but he was partnering with Paul and Paul's sharing of the gospel and planting churches. Gospel-empowered living in the real world is a life on mission. It's Jesus's command, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, missional teaching them to, commit, to obey all that I've commanded you, relational discipleship. And lo, I'm with you always at the end of the age, genuine care by his presence in our life. Gospel-powered living in the real world is a life on mission. And even in chains, Paul is sharing the gospel in Rome with Roman guards. Timothy, Timothy accompanies Paul in, in the difficulty of ministry for the sake of the gospel for over a decade at this point. In fact, that's how Paul even says he's proven his worth is the way that he's been a missional partner in serving 
with the gospel. A life on mission so that more people on this side of eternity will find life in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name. This is personal missional living, sharing the gospel where we go, making disciples, but it's also partnership with one another for the mission of God in all corners of the globe. This is why we call our love global and love local ministries partners. We are partnering with them to see the kingdom of God come where they are. Like our love local partnerships, we are partnering with them so that the kingdom of God will come in Jonesboro as it is in heaven. We partner with a church plant in New York so that the kingdom of God will come in New York as it is in heaven. We partner with church plants in Utah and Oregon and Washington. Why? So that the kingdom of God will come in those places as it is in heaven. We partner with a plant in Central America so that the kingdom of God will come there on earth as it is in heaven. We partner in Greece that the kingdom of God may come on earth as it is in heaven. We partner in the Middle East so that the kingdom of God will come there as it is in heaven. It's the rhythm of missional partnership and gospel living in the real world. How are you leveraging your life for the mission of God? How are we? I mean, I have to address this too. Acts 17 says that you live when you live and where you live in history on purpose so that those around you may see the presence of God and praise his name. So where do you go in your life that needs the presence of God through the proclamation of the gospel and a life lived where you work out your salvation? that God has worked into you. Or maybe God's calling you to leave and to go. Because you gotta know, Timothy woke up that day in Acts 16, probably not thinking there's an apostle coming to town who's gonna want me to follow him. But Paul said, hey, Timothy, come, accompany me on my journeys. And he said, I'll go. Where is God calling you to go? And really the question would be, what would prompt anyone to live here or move away for the mission of God? Well, the same thing that clearly prompted Paul and all of us, when we truly turn our lives to Jesus, we have to trust him with our life. And that trust brings peace and gospel living in the real world. Let's see, look at how Paul talks about his plans. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. When we follow Jesus, we have to trust him with our life. The word hope here is not the way we typically use the word hope. I've said this before, but when you see the word hope in the Bible, 99% of the time, it is meaning something that's more of an assurance of what God has already said, right? It's not like, I hope it doesn't rain when we're at the beach. 
It's like I have a deep understanding that this is what the Lord is calling me to. There's an assurance of what God has said. And most likely this means Paul is basing this on something he believes the Lord has revealed to him. I will send Timothy and I will come later. I've submitted my plans to the Lord and I feel like he has revealed that they will happen. And here's what I want us to see as we finish up. When we trust in the Lord, the difficulties of gospel living in the real world, which are there, when we trust in the Lord, we'll experience what he says later on in the book, chapter, or chapter four, verse seven. And I, didn't, I don't think it's gonna be on the screen, but if you flip a page over, you may not even have to go that far. Philippians 4, 7 says this, and we'll preach this in a few weeks, but just applying it here. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The rhythms of genuine care for others, relational discipleship, and missional partnership will bring challenges and anxious moments. I mean, just look at what he says in verses like 20, 26 uh, through the rest. He's been, talking about Epaphroditus. He's been longing for you all and he has been, this is Epaphroditus, he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's saying, he already feels sorrow. You know, sometimes we read this and we're like, Paul's just like walking around, always joyful, always smiling. He's got sorrow. Epaphroditus is distressed. Look at verse, look at verse, uh, the end of verse 28. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Flip the page, Paul's gonna say, don't be anxious. The reality is that when we live gospel lives, when we live lives worthy of the gospel, there's going to be distress. There's going to be anxiety at times. There's going to be situations in which you feel like you're at the end of your rope. And so when we do this, it's not that we never experience these emotions or these challenges. Quite the contrary, it's a promise that when we live lives worthy of the gospel, it's going to be difficult that's why Paul says, work out your salvation without fear and grumbling. It's gonna be hard. But when we trust in Jesus, the one who leverages his life for our good and is now at the right hand of God with all power, all authority on heaven and earth and with a name above every name, we can press into him and find a savior that stirs up hope, gives us confidence in his plan, dispenses peace and joy in life, and that, and that in this world that's so dark and desperate for hope and life, we can shine like lights. I've been saying this for two months. We don't trust in ourselves, but we do trust in Jesus to take our feeble attempts, the best we can offer at these rhythms of gospel living, that he'll take those and he'll bring about a beautiful and fruitful life on earth now and forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth where we will finally see all the fruits of our lives that we leveraged for his name. We trust Jesus. So where are you today? What has the Lord stirred up in you over the last four weeks as we've looked at what it means to only live a life worthy of the gospel.
And just in case you haven't been here, I mean, we've had holidays, we've had Mother's Day, we've had a lot of things that have come up. Just in case you haven't been here for all four messages, let me be very clear. A life worthy of the gospel is not saying that you earn the gospel. It's not that you earn the good news of Jesus. I never wanna, never wanna get tired of telling you, you don't work for salvation, you work from salvation. You don't work, it is, we said this last week, Paul says the way that you shine like lights and you maintain that is by holding fast to the gospel. Why? Because we're so naturally inclined to believe that we're perfected by our works. You don't work for salvation. You weren't saved by your works. You don't maintain it by your works. If you did, you would all, and myself included, would lose it. You work from salvation. And we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For he works in us. Not so he will work in us. This is what Paul says. So where are you today? Four weeks, we've looked at really what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? And how do we do that? Conceptually, and we've seen models of it here on the ground. What does it look like? So today, if you're here, if you're watching online and you would just say, you're not sure that you wanna follow Jesus. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. I would just ask, are you tired? Are you tired? Are you tired of living for your name, for your glory? Do you long to have a purpose in life larger than yourself? A purpose you actually were made for. St. Augustine, who lived in late fourth, early fifth century. And the reason I say that is because you'd never know it. He says so many things that are so applicable to today's culture, it's crazy. But one of the things he says, he's famous for saying actually, is that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. Today, non-follower of Jesus, do you have a restless heart? Would you step into that rest? I know it's counterintuitive to think that living a life worthy of the gospel would actually lead to rest, but that's the promise of the gospel. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your soul. Non-believer, would you come find rest in him today? Would you stop working for your own salvation? Instead, receive it and work it out. And today, Christian follower of Jesus in the room, online, are you, as you look at your life, do you find yourself internally focused all the time? That's a struggle for me. Are, are you internally focused a lot or are you looking over the interests of others to your own? I mean, just imagine if you could meet your own needs, if all of us could meet our own needs, then at the end of the day, all of our needs are met and that's great. But can you imagine the difference that it would be to, as a light, if instead of looking to our own needs, if all our needs were met by each other? It's the same result. 
all the needs are met, but instead of you meeting your own needs, you're meeting someone else's need and they're doing the same for you. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, leveraging your life to help someone else. Do you need to be discipled today? The question, <laughs> the answer is yes. question is more, how? Do you need to join a group? Do you have a person in our church that you know that you kind of look up to, but you've been afraid to ask them, like, would you, would you just take me alongside you and, and show me what it is to live for Jesus? Do you need to be the one discipling others? Yes, also yes. Maybe you should be leading a group. Or maybe you should take somebody that you know and partner with them in doing life together. And lastly, are you on mission? Are we on mission? Who has God already placed in your life through the rhythms of your life that he's calling you to be a light to? I'm gonna give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak to us in the silence. And then I will pray and we will sing in response to this God who has saved us and wants to work it out in ways that we probably have no idea. So ask the Spirit, show you areas where he's trying to lead you further into life. And then I'll pray. Father, we are just in awe when we think about who we were when you saved us. Some of us were saved at a young age. Some of us have been saved in the last couple years. And everywhere in between who we were when you saved us, Lord, and what you've done and and the way that you saved us, God, that we could never have reached you, that you crossed that chasm as only you could. And you came to leverage your life for us. Father, would you allow us not just to be in awe of that and to walk away unchanged, but for that good news to radically transform us and to live lives worthy of the gospel, Lord, that you know, like you know how hard it is for us, how easily we're distracted, how easily we're discouraged. Would you instead, Spirit, instill in us genuine care for others? Help us to practice that 
for the glory of your name. Would you open our eyes to the, to the ability to call people to come alongside us that can encourage us and we can encourage them in walking in that. Would you bring people to mind, even right now? And Father, I pray for people in our lives that, are, that don't know you. Did you give us a boldness? Lord, in, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, you know, it's hard sometimes. Everybody feels like they've heard the gospel. We can convince ourselves, oh, they've heard it. They know, they know Jesus. Would you open our eyes just to see that the fields are ripe for harvest? And would you send us out for the glory of your name, for the joy that's meant for us to have and help us in the difficulties to turn to you and be merciful and gracious to one another as you've been merciful and gracious to us. We lift our voices to you now, Lord. Would you inhabit our praise? In Jesus' name, amen.